0: We're going to read from Matthew's Gospel and uh, in the series, The Heart of Jesus, Uh, coming to an end soon, I suspect we'd focus towards Easter, journeying through the the trajectory of the Gospels and seeking to understand uh, more, not just about what happens with Jesus, but the motivation, the heart, the demonstration that Jesus brings of the Father. So, I'm going to read uh, two familiar passages. One is around uh, Palm Sunday, which is next week, but um, for obvious reasons, wanted to focus on it today. Matthew 21, uh, if you could find that or follow that on the screen behind me, verses 1 to 17. As they, as Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey. Tied there with her colt by her and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. I don't know if you've ever been in a victory parade. I got caught up in one, and uh, if you have got to know me at all over the time, uh, you know that uh, sports aren't my forte. I'm really glad Phil's not here today, because he'd be laughing at me at this point. But I did get caught up in a victory parade, slightly unintentionally, uh, as a student in Newcastle uh, in 1993, and for those football pundits amongst you, it was the era of Kevin Keegan, Newcastle United, and they were promoted into what was the Premier League at the time. And this is um, what was going on. I happened to be walking along the town more, and they brought back uh, the, the kind of, it was not before football was coming home, but into, into Newcastle, the town more uh, and citywide was full of jubilation and crowds and the trophy and cheering and scarves and Newcastle brown ale and banners and buses and trophies and oh, the singing. Amazing, amazing event. A little bit scary, actually. I wasn't wearing black and white. I was blissfully unaware of all this until I was in the midst of it. Returning in victory is a big thing. If you remember, I don't, the, uh, the World Cup, 1966, winning the Rugby World Cup, Andy Murray winning Wimbledon, victories are big things. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar, in the establishment of the Roman Empire, wanted to celebrate in mighty triumph, and he he defeated the Gauls and the enemies and returned in glorious victory and, has to be said, in style. His leading chariot was followed by a chain of captives, and his soldiers distributed 2,000 silver and gold coins to the crowds. And the city of Rome rang out with loud parties and games, all proclaiming one message. Caesar is king, Lord victorious. Victory parades go with the territory. The champion has arrived, the rescuer, the one to be at the center of the stage. The king, the spotlight is on. Jesus enters Jerusalem in an entirely contradictory fashion. And it has a lot to do with his heart and the heart of the Father and the purposes of God. Jesus is forever breaking the mold. We've learned behavior as human beings and we have it reinforced in oh so many ways. But we really do have to attend to Jesus because he leads to life. And the way of life, fullness of life, glorious life, wonderful life. You see, Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, not on a chariot or a war horse, as the king, but on a donkey, an unridden one. He's not distributing gold and and silver and kind of casting out notes, but actually is prepared to give something far more precious, his blood, his life. He's not entering Jerusalem having come from the battlefields, but actually coming into the city to the battle he must win. He doesn't come with a train of captives in tow, but humbly and simply and gathered with disciples and the large crowd of those who were willing voluntarily gathered. Of course, there's that lovely echo in Zechariah of the Messianic king riding into Jerusalem. I love the fact that Jesus fulfills things that were declared centuries before. It captures so much of the essence and the stage that was set and the narrative that had been foretold of the Son of Man entering the capital, Jerusalem, the seat of the kings, of David who had established and Solomon who had built the temple, that royal city, but enters as the suffering servant. The beauty of that moment, in glory, yes, characterized by service and humility. I don't know if you caught the news uh, just a couple of weeks ago about um, a gathering in Russia, in Moscow, where Putin was addressing the crowds. Did you see that? Read about it. And there was kind of um, some comment in the news that that students had been given the day off from their colleges as long as they attended. And trade unions were told to shut the factories and be there. A little bit of a strong arming or a little bit of will make it worth your while or perhaps tinged with an element of fear if you don't watch out. See, that's so often the way of powerful victors, of a dictator or a warrior, that there can be celebration, victory, but sometimes the sharp edge of that is tinged with fear, of apprehension. Oh, we've got to bring our applause and acclaim, or else they may notice. And that won't go so well. If you've ever seen those news reports of Pyongyang or of Beijing, and there's those great kind of spectacles of power and authority, and there's crowds of people clapping and, and smiling almost with fixed smiles. I wonder where the heart is behind the facade. It's quite telling. But it seems to me in reading this account, it's entirely for different for Jesus. There's a simplicity of his entry. Of course, he's going willingly, and the crowds are there voluntarily. Jesus rode on a borrowed donkey and on the cloaks and the branches that others had laid before. There were shouts of praise for echoing Psalm 118 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And even the following day, uh, the children in their way of getting those wonderful songs caught in their minds. In the temple courts, singing Hosanna to the Son of David, whatever the tune happened to be. Much to the fury and the consternation of the chief priests. Will you stop them? Haven't you heard from the lips of infants you have called forth praise? Caesar and those with military victory and of Jerusalem knew much of that, having experienced conquest and tyranny and occupation. They knew the mighty strength and the victor's spoils. They knew what being ruled with a sword and strength and violence looks like. And here's Jesus in meekness, gathering a people who freely choose to be there. But have no doubt, this is as real a victory as we would ever perceive. You see, this victory that Jesus is coming to fight, to win, to lay down his life, is against rulers and powers and principalities, not, strictly speaking, flesh and blood. But he wins a victory none of us could have won. He undoes the curse of sin. From every page of the human story that we we read from Genesis 3, the taint and the mire and the shackles of of our rebellion that he beats. Isn't that amazing? He has won. Plunging himself into death, death that is cold and stark and isolating and fearful, and he rises victorious and even decimates the stronghold and power of the evil one, who would rob and steal and destroy everything that is shaped by God. He snatches victory and is triumphant. He tears down the reign and rule of false kingdoms of every ideology and of the false gods that bind and snare and strangle and disable And We know what that is like. And thank God for Jesus, that he brings in this new kingdom of justice and mercy and grace and life and hope and abiding peace. And that's why we can pray confident of the heart of, the Jesus, of Jesus into our current situations in life with confidence and certainty, to know that it is not vacuous and powerless and pointless, but contending with the Lord who has victory is victorious over these things. No wonder they could shout, Hosanna, the Lord saves. And We can add our voices wholeheartedly. Just reading news reports this morning, watching pictures of uh, the devastation of Ukraine replayed again of brutality, cruelty and wickedness, senselessness. I find I can't pray words sometimes. I just get this knot of like grief, I guess, desperation. How can this be? How can human beings keep doing this? I find myself in that place of despair, catching the glimmer of light that fans hope and trust again, that says it's not... Going to be this way. This shall not prevail. This is not victorious. It is real and it wrecks life, but the Lord shall prevail. May not seem it in the darkness of night, but we can look back over the story of God's people and the implicit. And sometimes, unseen way the kingdom of God unfolds. You see, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem triumphant, the triumphal entry it's called, we know too that through his death and resurrection, There will be another triumphing, another declaration of his victory. Paul writes about it in Colossians in chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. There is a victory parade because he has vanquished that which everyone else is entirely powerless to defeat. And having done so, the prophetic vision which we still long for and yearn for, and Isaiah and many of the Old Testament prophets still look forward to that day and we long for it, Echoed in those wonderful little phrases that swords will be turned into farming implements. Guns and bombs into tractors and things that will be productive, not decimating. And that lovely prophetic vision of people will live a long life. If you die at 70, they'll say, what a young death you've had. And you can plant things that take ages to grow. You know, the, the old adage, plant a tree and your, your grandchildren enjoy it. The prophetic vision is we will too, because life will not be snuffed out and foreshortened. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Isaiah 2, he will judge between the nations and and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Don't we long for that? It's not fantasy or wishful thinking. We contend for these things. That in Jesus coming into Jerusalem with his heart and his mind and his life focused upon the battle that he will fight and win. There is a clear choice, and the Gospels are wonderfully clear. Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And the shock in this story is the chief priests and the scribes and the elders failed to see what was obvious to the little children. Even the blind and the lame, barred from entry into the temple because they were imperfect, saw Jesus more clearly than that of the priests and the learned. The returning king. Hosanna the son of David. But then you get this wonderfully bizarre story. Matthew has it, Jesus then entered the temple courts, all the synoptics included, and indeed in John's story, but placed earlier on in, in John's gospel. Jesus overturns all the money changers and drives out all those who've commercialized the temple. Anger being exhibited. When we think of the heart of Jesus, it doesn't come always naturally. What is this anger? This rising kind of sense of this is unjust, this is not right. And he puts himself dead set in the thick of it to change things. It's not as one of my friends described to me uh, his experience in Sunday school. I'll just check with Verity later that uh, when they cover this, this isn't what they teach. As a nine year old, the teacher leading the Sunday school said, Don't worry about this story. Jesus is just having a bad day like the rest of us. Not true. In the heart of Jesus, this is really important to grasp a holy zeal passion for the name and honor and the glory to be to the Father. But more than that, to let people come. There's a sense, deep sense here, that Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem and is straight at the heart of the worshiping life of Israel, is bringing judgment there. He says, you've turned this place into a house of of robbers. He, he quotes from Jeremiah 7, who also speaks against the temple, an institutionalized religion that has become formulaic and power-based and centered upon the privileged and the few, not the ability to meet with God regularly and humbly. He says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, as he brings a prophecy against that that age and that temple, he says, this shall be undone, this this place will be judged because you are trusting in it, not the one who dwells in it. He calls them in verse 12, uh, I'll read it, he says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where the tabernacle used to be, where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called, but you didn't answer. Therefore what I did to Shiloh I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Jesus quotes Jeremiah and says, You know what happened under the Babylonians. Solomon's temple ruined. Herod's temple, the temple, the great one in Jerusalem, had been rebuilt. The place of religious life, the heart, the focus, the place of power. Jesus comes to judge it and says, this is a place of ritual and empty religion. You just go through the motions of being devout, but the heart is unchanged. The way you live is contrary to to the actions you put your trust in. It's empty. And it is going. It's become a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer for all nations. I preached at the beginning of the year from Luke chapter 2 of Jesus as a teenager in the temple. And he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And as Jesus returns... 30 years later, he finds that his father's house is corrupt. They were called to worship, an invitation to come, to know, to meet, to find restoration and forgiveness and peace and life and reconciliation, but it had become something far different. I've, I've got a little picture of the temple. Thank you, Chris. In case you don't know much about how this looks, some of you will. In the middle of this thing is, well, it's the big Herod's temple in Jerusalem. There's a big wall around the outside and gates And this big kind of area around is the court of the Gentiles. It's a big area, isn't it? A lot of empty space. And then in the middle of it, you get the temple and uh, the court of women and the holy place the priests could go. And then the holy of holies that was at the center, but almost excluded even from the high priest bar one day a year. Why does he call it? A den of robbers. Why is Jesus overturning the temple, the money changers and chasing out all those? But it become like, here's a whole lot of space and space is always premium in the heart of a capital city. And the temple had its own currency and it needed to do some exchange and you could buy your doves and, and creatures that you were bringing to sacrifice. And, and where would you put it all in crowded streets? Well, there's a whole empty space, isn't there, of the court of the Gentiles. And there aren't many Gentiles coming to Jerusalem because it's so hard. Naturally, there it goes. Jesus comes in and finds it Occupied. And he overturns it all and says, this is finishing. I always find this really profound, that it takes place in the court of the Gentiles. There's a resonance here of something so wonderfully profound. That the the heritage and the legacy of the Jewish people was to know God, to walk with Him, to be His holy people and shine into the world as a light. But it had been masked and hidden For all sorts of reasons. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the victorious king. And the first thing that he does is he says, I want to clear this space. Why? Because the Gentiles are going to come and meet with me as well. There's going to be place and space, not just for the privileged men and the elite and the one-off occasionally to encounter me. But all peoples will be able to come and worship truly in spirit and in truth. He'd already declared that to the Samaritan woman at the well he clears and makes space the court of the Gentiles to say, a new age has come. This will be cleared away. The physical structures of the temple will be overthrown. And it came to pass in AD 70 where the Romans did truly take it apart, never to be restored. this place to be a house of prayer for all nations, that those who were perceived to be the furthest away are no longer marginalized and peripheral, but central, no barrier anymore to anyone coming to the living God freely without having to bring anything other than ourselves, falling on the mercy of God and saying, Lord, I trust in your Son, Jesus, my Saviour. The messianic promises that foretold in the prophets, this wonderful fulfillment of hope and promise comes to pass that the Gentiles, you and I, are welcome, and women, and men, and priests, and all to come. The reminder in this prophetic action that Jesus brings as he clears the temple, in the implication of that to say there is no hierarchy or class in the kingdom of God that all can come to Jesus freely. And the court of the Gentiles, are reminder there's no racism in the kingdom of God. Bear that in mind as refugees come to us. They are welcome. And no class, no prejudice, and even the court of the women is undone. No sexism in the kingdom of God. We're all one in Christ Jesus, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Hosanna to the Son of David. We began the series, Come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. We see the passion and zeal of Jesus, his determination to accomplish that which is set before him. And his tenaciousness and passion and zeal are still evident. May those with power and prestige and authority who exercise it contrary to the kingdom of God beware, for his kingdom will endure and prevail, none other. He calls us to follow and believe and trust and obey freely, not under compulsion or fear or tyranny of the Caesars and the military victors, but to come out of freedom of choice and of powerful love. Jesus comes in gentleness and meekness and calls us to submit and follow and voluntarily choose this kingdom revolution. But please make no mistake about his meekness means weakness far Far from it. This Passover lamb entering Jerusalem is no pushover. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he. And as we come to this table... And share in the meal that he said is about this new age. This dawning of the era long expected and, long, and, and, and hopeful. We are part of this. Come feed and be restored and renewed. Come and align yourself again to him as, and his kingdom. Renew your trust in him and say I will walk freely voluntarily with him. Come in our humility. And let his, our weakness Be a way of him bringing strength to us. Our need of him be an expression of our love and trust in all that he has done. Be renewed and restored. Let's pray. As the band come back and help us.